And I find that anxiety to be far worse than the anxiety of a company failing. The company failing part, I think, is all ego, right? It's in a sense, you start to tie your identity to the startup. And if it fails, you feel like you fail. Hey, this is Jesse here, and you're about to hear my chat with Dan Taran, co-founder of Scrimmage, which is a retention tool for sports betting operators. Fresh off of winning the SBC first pitch competition in New Jersey, Dan shares his perspective on pitching and what he thinks is a recipe for a successful pitch. We also discuss Scrimmage's origins as a sports betting hedge fund, how Scrimmage is using gamification to drive customer loyalty, and his experience taking Scrimmage through the Techstars Accelerator program. I had a great time talking to Dan, and I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. But before we get started, the Canadian Gaming Summit is coming to Toronto in just a couple of weeks, and if you're not already planning to attend, then it's not too late to add it to your calendar. Join over 2,000 industry professionals who will experience this year's all-new event, which includes three days of content, two amazing networking parties, and yes, another installment of the first pitch competition, which we will be there to moderate. To learn more and to secure your ticket, visit www.sbcevents.com and use promo code BETTINGSTARTUPSVIP for $200 off of your ticket, and I'll see you in Toronto soon. All right, we are back with episode 68 of the Betting Startups podcast after a little bit of a hiatus for SBC in New Jersey, which we'll come back to in just a moment. But for episode 68, I'm really, really happy to welcome Dan Tarrant, who's a co-founder of Scrimmage. And Dan, uh, I spent a bit of time with you and your co-founder, Matt, at SBC the other week. And we'll talk about the show in a moment here. But just to check in with you at the starting line here today, how are you feeling on the back of that conference? And uh, more importantly, are you all rested up after what was a really busy week for most people there? Absolutely. It was kind of our first trip into the conference circuit, in a sense. We we, we not um, spend any time at any of the other ones. So it was cool to put a lot of faces to names and tiring experience going back and forth from New Jersey to New York to New York to New Jersey, but uh, overall good experience and we had a lot of fun. Right on. Well, let's just start there then. I mean, being that it was your first sort of industry conference and kind of just, you know, your first opportunity to take it all in. I'm just curious, like, how was the overall event for you? And we'll come back to the first pitch competition uh, separately in just a moment. So excluding that, like, what's your just overall like takeaways on the event? And yeah, what can you share with us in terms of just the experience? Certainly, I think, you know, to to the betting industry listening, this is probably pretty obvious, but there's an in crowd and then there's a crowd that wants to be in the in crowd. Uh, probably like any industry that's specific and conference specific. And for an early stage company, in a lot of ways, you're trying to break into the in crowd. And though betting seems like a large industry, as you know, there's, you know, you, you see the same names pop up in, in a bunch of different places and they unlock a lot of the keys to a lot of the doors, I guess, in, in a way. So giving them a sense of, you know, you're a credible person, you're building a credible product because they get pitched to a lot. They probably have a lot of people asking of them. You know, it, it takes time. So for us, emails are good. Zooms are good. All that's good. But being able to meet them in person and be like, look, we're a real company solving a real problem. Um, it's a great experience. So for us, it was how do you break into the in crowd um, without being overly aggressive? And uh, that's what we tried to do. Right on. And a particularly notable week for you and the scrimmage team, because as I alluded to, uh, part of the SBC formalities included the first pitch competition where I was actually a moderator. So I got to see you there that day. And uh, congratulations is owed first and foremost here, Dan, because you were the consensus winner from the live judging panel uh, that was there that day. And you had uh, some very stiff competition. There was four other fantastic companies up there, uh, but you and Scrimmage emerged the victor. So yeah, first and foremost, congrats on that. Just wondering if you can sort of share your experience pitching at that event and yeah, just sort of like the arc of, I guess, what goes into preparing for a pitch like that. 
actually delivering the pitch and, and just sort of everything that comes around that, that I'd love to hear just sort of what your experience was from that perspective. Yeah, certainly. And yeah, the, the other four companies were, were pretty awesome, building some really interesting things. I think the, the early stage betting space is, is in good hands. From our perspective, you know, and, and also thank you, very kind, but from our perspective, you know, I'd been in the pitch circuit for a while, I guess I would say in college, I was pitching finance at heart. I was pitching stocks. Uh, I worked at Bank of America, pitching more on the distressed debt side. Um, and then you come over to you know, starting a company, you're pitching to investors, to, com- to operators, to, to customers. And for someone that doesn't have much of a sales background, and I, I don't think I'm very salesy, uh, I've certainly over time come to my own philosophy of what makes a good pitch. And it's totally anecdotal and subjective. It's kind of my own experience. So what I was trying to do is just what I think of a good pitch is to give that to the audience. And usually my barometer for that is, are people on their phones or are they blankly staring at the slides behind you? And as long as that's not happening, as long as people are looking at you, you're probably at least keeping their intention. And I think, you know, they're looking for verbal cues. You know, do, do I think this guy is smart? They're looking for your uh, mannerisms. You know, is he looking nervous up there? All these different things, they're instantly making judgments of you and to, to make sure that their eyes are on you and focused is, is at the bare minimum what you're trying to accomplish. So for us, that was my goal going into it. I think um, I'm happy to dive into kind of my philosophy on pitching if it's at all interesting, but um, that's what we were trying to do. And I felt when I walked off the stage, I thought there was some good eye contact throughout and not too many phones out. So I felt okay with whatever the decision was. Awesome. I actually want to stay there just for a minute here, Dan, before we continue. You know, look, I, I was moderating. I had no role whatsoever in selecting the winners. So I was, uh, you know, uh, just a member of the audience from that perspective. And my observation of your pitch vis-a-vis the other four, which were also fantastic, right? Um, yours did stand out to me in the sense that I really felt that you took a bit of a storytelling perspective to it uh, and really sort of focused on a narrative as opposed to sort of hard numbers, KPIs, a sort of really analytical side of pitching. Obviously, three minutes, uh, which is what you had to deliver the pitch, isn't a lot of time. So you really need to sort of pick that strategy and, and commit to it. And you did that. I'm just curious, like you sort of alluded to your philosophy on pitching. I'm just wondering if you can talk about your decision, I guess, to sort of take more of a storytelling approach to it and sort of what the trade-offs were there were as you sort of thought about your strategic approach to the pitch. Definitely. Yeah, I think that pitch style um, is higher risk, higher reward, mostly because what I think makes a good pitch, uh, especially early stage, is the only thing you're trying to get across is what is the problem you're solving and why are you the team to solve it? And that's really it. And sometimes what you often find in pitches is counterintuitive to that goal. And what I mean by that is market size or even your KPIs, even if it's good traction, the audience and the judges know whatever's on your slide deck is the absolute best part of your company. That you are only going to show them positive things and they could kind of, you know, they know that. So what I think you have to do, at least again, just my subjective opinion is you have to create some sub- subject matter expertise and you have to do it early. You have to make the audience feel like you know something that they cannot very easily acquire the knowledge themselves by just Googling it or whatever else. It's not consensus knowledge. And sometimes that could land really flat because they might think, I don't buy that this guy is a subject matter expertise. So I think this is, for lack of a better word, maybe a bit cringy. Uh, so it is, I think, a risk. And I thought, you know what? I'll give it a try. If you're passionate about what you're doing and you maybe do have a little bit of expertise in the area, then you'll come across as, as someone that that has something to give to the audience. And that usually will stick with them. 
Um, so gave it a try and I'm glad it worked out in our favor, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you're, you're putting your ego more on the line a little bit because you know, if it lands flat, that the audience was essentially making a judgment of you and, uh, that can be scary, but you know, you got one shot, right? hundred percent. Well, obviously the risk in this instance paid off because, uh, yeah, yeah, you and Scrimmage did emerge the victors. So congrats on all of that. Um, let's just leave that there for now, Dan, and get into the, sure. uh, meat and potatoes of our time here today, which is to talk about Scrimmage. But before we get there. Maybe you can kind of quickly take us through your background, share some of the major chapters of your journey up until you co-founded Scrimmage. Definitely. Yeah. So I grew up in Northeast Pennsylvania, uh, right outside of Scranton. So for any office fans right there in the heart of it all, went to Penn State. So kept it in PA. I was a finance major. My path, I thought was going to be traditional finance path of investment banking to a hedge fund. Um, and that was kind of where my planning stopped. That's what I thought I was going to do. Um, but one thing led to another and ended up uh, starting Scrimmage. Awesome. Well, let's fill in the gaps there a little bit for the start of Scrimmage. Um, it'd be awesome if you can sort of talk about the origin story. And I guess as you run sort of that career trajectory, let's say, in the yeah. finance world, uh, you know, co-founding a tech startup seems like an abrupt left turn. So kind of just maybe take us through where you're at at that time and kind of just the, the original seedlings of what became Scrimmage and, and just sort of connect those dots, if you could. Certainly. So in New York, doing banking, I was covering the energy sector. I was there when oil went sub-zero, it was a lot of fun. Um, and my co-founder, Matt and I, he was doing a very similar, similar thing at Citigroup. And, you know, we liked investing. You know, we liked the idea of um, making a decision on something and seeing how it pans out. Um, and we felt like there was some alpha to be gained in the sports betting markets. So our initial play into sports betting was, okay, let's start a hedge fund where you bet on sports and you raise money and return that capital to investors. And on its surface, I think a lot of people have that idea. They do it in different ways, but we were like, let's do it. So we quit our jobs at Bank of America and City, and we started what was called Fremont Capital Partners. It was based in Gibraltar, uh, which you know I've never been, but I heard it's absolutely beautiful. It was a private fund. And yeah, what we were trying to do is raise money and, and bet it overseas. And there's a lot of reasons for that, whether it's you know legality, which came into play later, as well as, you know, for it to be scalable, you needed to not be limited, which again, uh, more of the overseas books are, are more interested in. So our returns were really good. I think our our reason for starting it was correct in that there, there was some alpha to be gained, but I was what, 22 at the time, cold calling family offices and angels and being like, hey, I know you don't know me, but you should give us money. We're gonna go bet it in Gibraltar. You know, it was tough. We ended up raising a little bit of money. Some people believed us, but, uh, between that and, and banking issues and legality issues, we eventually turned some of that tech into the original scrimmage, which was a B2C product trying to help bettors gain an edge. And uh, I have my opinions on all those different types of products that aggregate data and odds, but we gave our try at that, got into Techstars, the sports seller in Indianapolis, and uh, that's what we were going with. Um, and then eventually we, we made a pretty substantial pivot towards the end of the Techstars program, which was last summer, which eventually became what scrimmage is now. So that was kind of the origin story and a fun one, right? A fun one betting when, when, when you're young and trying to, trying to pitch that to investors was a very good time. But, uh, you know, I like to think of it as we were a bit ahead of our time and trying to start a fund and with us investors that, that took that approach. Yeah. I mean, as if starting a business isn't difficult enough on the surface, right? You chose like one of the most regulated spaces and one of the more yeah. complex structures to it that I could envisage. So uh, well, that makes a lot of sense, Dan, I guess, in terms of the origins and the journey here. 
that segues pretty nicely then into the current state of scrimmage. So for folks listening that might not be familiar with it, can you just start with sort of a high concept overview? I mean, what is scrimmage? What does it do? And what's just the overall value proposition? Definitely. Yeah, so scrimmage, we build betting operators, gamified loyalty programs that integrate directly into their app or website that are customized to their user base. And the value prop is essentially rewards programs pretty much across industries are exceptionally good at helping companies lower their churn and help with their retention. And sports betting products, whether it's DFS or sports betting or, or even lottery, fit very well for loyalty programs in general. But it takes a really large team to build them, to manage them, and keep them fresh. And, and what I mean by that is users will always be somewhat interested in cash as a, a motivator. You know, I, I place a bet, I get some cash back, that's cool. But surprisingly, money is less of a motivator for people than you might think, uh, which is kind of counterintuitive and surprising in this betting space. So to limit that burnout, you need a specialized loyalty program. And we provide those for operators. Gotcha. And curious, Dan, like, can you talk a bit about just the, I guess, the conversations you're having so far with operators and potential partners and just, I guess, the feedback you're hearing from them insofar as this, this concept of a gamified loyalty program. I mean, as you rightly state, rewards programs are, are fairly ubiquitous uh, across different sectors and industries. For whatever reason, uh, seemingly in sports betting, there really isn't a, a robust solution there, let's call it. And, mm -hmm. and that's the gap that Scrimmage is looking to fill. Just curious. So like, yeah, I'm curious about like the feedback you're hearing so far from the market on the overall concept. Absolutely. So I guess to take a quick step back, we built the game as an app, right? So we used the company Shark Sports, who I know you had on, on the podcast before. They'd allow us to track our users' bet history. And we built it ourselves. We put it in the app store. People were able to sync DraftKings, FanDuel, prize picks, the like. And we tested what it did on our users' betting habits. And essentially, it resulted in a far more engaged audience. We saw, on average, a 6x increase in the daily average handle that users were betting after syncing with us and playing our game. So we knew that we had a product that kept users engaged. And when we took up the operators, I think there was one major pushback, which is backlog, right? And operators have massive backlogs. For those that are listening, this is, uh, you know, they're probably smiling, thinking, yeah, we have so many things that we want to do. So we spent an just an unfathomable amount of time making sure that the integration process was as quick as possible. And on the, the feedback on the loyalty program, just in general and integrating one, it's on everyone's backlog. Um, if you don't have one already, it's somewhere in it. It's six months down the line, at the year down the line, wherever it is, they know that it would take a pretty large team to be able to fulfill that. And transparently, you have to hire engineers or product managers, whoever, to maintain it. And that's a pretty expensive ask, especially for a startup and even like the mid-tier to the kind of second tier operators. It's, a, it's an expensive ask. So they get that part very well. But I would say the backlog, just dev time resources was probably the biggest pushback. Yeah, fair enough. And it's early days in the journey so far and, and you're having these conversations. But I guess as you sort of think about like the business model and, and how you'll ultimately monetize the platform, mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about that? Just sort of like what the economy of a, a rewards and loyalty program okay. look like and, and, and sort of how the different stakeholders participate in that? Definitely. So this is my favorite part of the business personally. I feel that aligning interests is probably the most important thing that you could do in, in a product like this. So the way Scrimmage monetizes is like a video game. We're building you a gamified loyalty program. We think it makes sense that we make money like a video game makes money, especially in 2023. What I mean by that is you provide users cash back, you being the operator. So let's say they decide to give 1% of handle back to their users, and this is completely up to the operator. 
someone bets $100, they give $1 back. The user can cash that out. So they cash out the entire dollar. Scrimmage makes no money on that transaction. If the user chooses to spend a portion of that dollar back into the loyalty game on level ups, on quest lines, on different cosmetics, that's where scrimmage makes money. And that is very consistent with live service video games, Apex, Fortnite, everyone tries to copy that model. And the only way that it works is if the game is keeping the user engaged. If they are buying these quest lines or buying these level ups, that means that they are not just using it as an ATM. Um, so it aligns interest. It's the same cost to the operator. If you were going to give your users 1% cash back anyway, you could still use that model with us, but our bet is that it'll be significantly more impactful. And if it's not, then it'll be the same cost to you. So we love that. I think operators have been very responsive to that business model. Um, so we're really excited about that and, and building off that in general. Awesome. Uh, I, I want to sort of just focus for a second on the gamification aspect. Um, I reflect back on your pitch at SBC a couple of weeks ago. I caught some references in it to the Octalysis framework, oh, yeah. uh, which is popularized by Yukai Chao, who is actually a recent guest on the podcast. So gamification is fresh on the minds of everybody listening to this, uh, which is why I want to focus on it for a second here, Dan. I guess as you're talking about taking a gamified approach to loyalty and, and rewards, um, I'm interested in understanding sort of your perspective on, I guess, the industry at large in terms of gamifying experiences. Like, how's the industry doing with gamification in different products? And um, just what's your sort of all, overall assessment on, you know, the opportunity, I guess, with gamification? Definitely. Huge fan of you, Kai. Really awesome that you had him on. I was just listening to that podcast recently. And from my perspective, I think that the sports betting industry, and, and not from a legality standpoint, I'll make this clear, uh, sports betting, DFS, whether it's a game of skill or chance, not on the legal side, just from the user perspective side, much of it boils down to risk-taking. And risk-taking is a very powerful driver for people to do things. The idea that you're gonna get a reward at the end of something and you feel like you have a little bit of control over it pre-game or when you make the bet because you have some sort of edge, but you can't control the game, obviously, that you're betting on, that's very powerful. That's why you see, obviously, sports betting taking off and, and, and lotteries have always been very successful. But that's one very specific driver of human motivation. And I would say that sports betting operators and the like tend to double down on that as the way that they want to gamify their product. It's a lot of more chance-based systems. It's a lot more, you know, you get to spin a wheel or a rocket ship goes in the air and you get some sort of, you know, 1.5x return that you have no control over. So what we do at scrimmage is we try to play to everything else, right? Risk-taking is a small part of the scrimmage game, but that's being covered by the gamified aspects of, of sports betting in general. So we focus on things like customability. You know, how is the playthrough of the user different each user? How does the user feel like even though they are using a sports book, it's their sports book customized to them? We have a really robust perk system where users can with perks that are totally uh, dependent on their play style and will help some users and not help other users. We have a really robust quest system with quests customized to that user base and to that user specifically. So they feel like they're almost being pushed to different things that fit their play style. How do you, millions of people play the same video game, but it's the same code, it's the same software. Everyone feels like they have a totally different experience. I don't think sports betting products give users that feel. And at Scrimmage, we do things like customability, which I touched on, camaraderie, we have group quests where you can tip out users that are doing well. You feel like you're a part of a bigger whole. We have creativity where people can combine different things together in an infinite number of ways. So they feel like it's customized. We have scarcity where you're getting 
different rewards based on actions that only appear at a certain time. So many different things that are totally gamified and different from what the typical sports betting offer would be. Um, so we think that's super powerful and it plays to so many more types of users than just the risk-taking aspect of sports betting products. Right on. Appreciate that, uh, that breakdown. That makes a lot of sense yeah, in that context. Curious to also ask when I think about gamification, and I know we're in the crypto winter right now, but, you know, gamification, I think is one of these things that, you know, blockchain technologies and specifically NFTs uh, could play a role. And I'm just curious, Dan, sort of how you're thinking about what role, if any, sort of Web3 technologies and NFTs play in uh, sort of the scrimmage offering and, and maybe on the roadmap. Do you have sort of any thoughts around that? Or is it a little too early to say sort of where that fits into the picture for you guys? Certainly. Yeah, I think the way we think about Web3 um, and NFTs specifically is if a user likes NFTs, they'll be happy that NFTs are involved, but they probably would have used the product if NFTs were not involved. If a user hates NFTs and NFTs are involved, they're probably not going to use the product. And that at its core, I think, is a difficult thing for operators in the sports betting space to overcome. So what we did at Scrimmage was everything that you see in the game that's owned by the user, we have an internal blockchain and we could turn it into an NFT if the operator really wants it. But our core base offering does not involve Web3 at all for the reason that I just outlined. I think there was a point in time where operators actually confused NFTs with gamification in the sense that NFTs pandered in a sense to a younger audience. And I just don't think that the data has suggested that that's true. So we have it as an option. We're flexible. If an operator feels very strong that it's, that's part of their value prop, we could do it. Um, but it's not forced upon anyone that we integrate with. Gotcha. Right on. Let's shift gears a little bit uh, away from the product specifically and talk about the funding side of all of this. Uh, obviously, sure. uh, you know, it takes resources to build a platform like you're building at Scrimmage. So maybe to start with, Dan, you could give folks listening just a quick backgrounder on funding to date uh, and, and talk about any sort of investors you guys have on the cap table so far. Definitely. Uh, so originally Scrimmage was bootstraps. Investment banking is not a lot of fun, but it does pay pretty well. So Matt and I basically dumped most of our life savings into Scrimmage. Um, and then we were lucky enough to get into Techstars, which really opened up the investor doors for us. And we were lucky enough to raise a small round, about 600K um, from our lead investors, uh, Roger Ehrenberg, Eber Capital and IA Sports Ventures, part of the uh, Miami Marlins. He actually just recently led the Slam Ball round, which I remember seeing highlights on when I was a kid. So super cool. He's been amazing. And the Techstars team has been amazing. So we got really lucked out with who we got on early, uh, but that's what we've raised today. Got it. Then I guess looking ahead here, um, you know, as far as sort of financing the growth and capitalizing on the opportunities on uh, sort of the B2B side of things, uh, any fundraising plans for the future or too early to think about that right now? Certainly. So we're getting some traction, um, some really meaningful traction that we're really excited about. I think we have the runway right now where we could still be heads down on product, as a lot of uh, entrepreneurs like to say, but we have the runway to be able to get to these certain KPIs where we feel like we can really raise a meaningful round to get us to that that next stage. So for us, we have these letters of intent from different operators. Let's get the integrations in and then we can start looking at a fundraising round. So super excited about that. And uh, we'll probably look for that round somewhere towards the end of the year. Right on. Um, I want to come back to the Techstars uh, experience just for a moment here as well. You know, we've had other guests on in the past that have gone through actually Techstars specifically, but also other sort of accelerator yeah. programs. And 
you know, at the outset of our conversation here today, you sort of touched upon the couple of pivots you've done since the inception of Scrimmage. And it sounds like the one that sort of led you to where you're at today was at the Techstars program. I'm just curious, Dan, like, particularly for other founders that are listening that might be considering going through an accelerator, just wondering if you can talk a bit more about the experience of going through there and like some of the tangible value you get out of that, Lisa, which is in your case, sounds like a lot of clarity on the model and, and future direction for scrimmage. Um, just, yeah, appreciate any sort of, uh, I guess, insights or anecdotes you can share about your time at Techstars. Certainly. Uh, I think there's, there is an element of luck just in the sense that if the team that you're involved with at Techstars, that, that cohort, whoever selected you, or whether it's YC or 500 startups, if they're people that you vibe with and people that you get along with, they're essentially your earliest advocate. So if it doesn't align, then I think it could be a bad experience. For us, we got lucky where the Techstars Sports Accelerator were awesome guys that saw what we were doing and have been really advocates for us. So from our perspective, we were early stage, no VC connections, no angel connections, you know, no rich uncles or aunts that uh, were throwing us money. So we definitely needed it and it gave us a lot of clarity and direction, especially on the fundraising side. So if you could find the right fit and not just do it just to do it, I think it could really prove dividends for you, but that it's not a one size fits all. At different stages of companies with different directions and, and even just different founder personalities. I think sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. And I think we lucked out, but I don't think everyone's experience would be the same way. Yeah, fair enough. Also want to touch upon, I guess, just your journey so far as an entrepreneur. And I guess thinking back to that leap from the finance world and into the, the trajectory you're now on, what's been the biggest challenge for you in taking that leap into entrepreneurship? And, you know, it says you reflect on the journey so far, and obviously there's a lot of runway ahead of you still, uh, but the journey to date, like what's, what's been sort of the biggest challenge, I guess, just adjusting to the realities of, of leading a startup at the scale that you're you're, you're shooting for here? Yeah, I think I think I have a bit of a boring answer for this one, which is really the thing that uh, has hurt me the most is I'm 25. Most of my friends are fresh out of college. They meet up a lot. Uh, they hang out and I don't get to go because I'm busy. That's been the hardest part for me is missing out on friends and family functions. I know the typical answer mostly is around the anxiety of a startup failing. I'll be honest, I was on the other side of the anxiety, more existential of doing something that you didn't love and thinking, is there something else that I could do out there that would be more fulfilling and fun? And I find that anxiety to be far worse than the anxiety of a company failing. The company failing part, I think, is all ego, right? It's in a sense, you start to tie your identity to the startup. And if it fails, you feel like you fail. And uh, transparently, I would totally feel that way. So there that, there's that anxiety risk. But in reality, I think the other risk of like, I don't have Sunday scaries anymore. Part of the reason is I work the weekends. But the other part is I don't mind waking up and doing what I'm doing. And previously, it would hit like nine o'clock Eastern in New York. I'd be maybe wanting to watch Sunday night football. I'd get through half of it and I'd be like, man, I'm getting up at five tomorrow, get on the subway and not have a lot of fun. So for me, it's been... um it's more just been missing out on on uh, friends and family. Yeah, hundred percent can, can relate to that. And and for the record, you're not the first guest to answer that way. So you're a good company there. I'm also curious, Dan, if you could talk a little bit about just sort of how you are balancing the demands of leading scrimmage, uh, while at the same time sort of developing yourself as a founder and a leader, and just everything that goes into you know putting yourself at the at, you know the, the captain of the ship, right? Um, how do you sort of balance, I guess, yeah, uh, all of that, and and sort of carry forward uh, with the optimism that you do. Certainly. I think you kind of touched on it. You have to be an optimistic person, I think, still realistic, but you have to be a pretty optimistic person, I think, to do this. For me, I'll be honest, self-work, I think, has come as maybe like an afterthought. 
Um, one thing that Matt and I do extremely well is we have one thing usually in our life or a couple things in our life daily that we do pretty religiously that isn't involved with scrimmage. And you know, for us, it's, it's working out. My girlfriend's been super supportive. Uh, we hang out. My dog, Moose, great guy, love spending time with him. All that stuff, I think, keeps, it, keeps you sane. But in terms of you know, founder development, for me, it's been learning on the fly. You know, I haven't spent too much time really working on, am I doing things effectively? I think that's led to a lot of trial and error of getting the hiring process better, speaking to customers better, investors better, rather than maybe spending so much time upfront on it. We've learned it on the fly, but we've made pivots. We've done a bunch of different things. And uh, I think we've gotten a lot of experience from it. And uh, Matt and I complement each other pretty well in terms of, you know, our skill sets, our demeanor, the way that we kind of navigate startups. We, we play off each other well, some pretty different big differences in our personality. But at the end of the day, um, we get along extremely well. And that's, that's certainly helped uh, wherever our deficiencies are. It seems like the other one picks it up. Um, so that's helped us maybe navigate the waters more effectively. Right on. And uh, having spent some time with both you and Matt at SBC, I can definitely see sort of that complementary, uh, not not only in terms of like this, the skill set you mentioned, but just your personalities, uh, you know, one plus one does equal three and, and hanging out with you guys certainly seems like that's the case. One fun one here to think about, uh, if you had a crystal ball in front of you there, you're looking into it and you're looking five years into the future and your wildest dreams, what does life look like them and, and sort of where's scrimmage in, in wider betting ecosystem at that time? I think for us, being the retention solution for betting operators across obviously sports betting, DFS, lottery, betting adjacent type companies that focus on just in and around the sports betting process is where we make the most sense. Um, loyalty is one thing that we can do. And there's a bunch of other things that we feel extremely confident about that could add extra retention to the operators. So being the company that you think about when you start a sports book, start a DFS book or, or a lottery type company where you feel like it's a part of your tech stack. It's important. You could customize it and an operator, or, sorry, customers demand it. It's really where we want to be. And I, I think we have a path to get there. Um, so whether that's five years, two years, or even 10 years, uh, I think we got the bandwidth to do it, the expertise to do it. And uh, if we execute, I, th I think we could get there. Awesome. I'll lead this to my final question, the most important one. Um, perhaps you've heard it before if you've listened to the pod. If you weren't working yep. on scrimmage or in tech or in betting, or in finance or any previous careers in a parallel universe, what would you be doing instead? I'm hoping that there's a parallel universe out there where I'm somehow involved in combat sports, whether that's a fighter or not, I have no idea. But UFC has quickly overtaken for me, my, my favorite thing to view. Training in the time that I can is, is the most fun, probably thing that I do outside of, I, sh I should say, hanging with my girlfriend and friends and whatever. Uh, most fun thing that I do every day. So hopefully there's a me out there that's doing something involved in that. So yeah, hopefully that exists somewhere. Awesome. For folks listening, Dan, that want to, you know, check out scrimmage, get to understand the value prop better and or get in touch with yourself, where can you point them towards to do all that? Sure. Yeah. My email is dan at scrimmage.co. Uh, very simple. And the website is scrimmage.co. So you can find us both there. And yeah, happy to talk to people, whether it's about scrimmage or gamification in general. It is something that we're super passionate about. And I think yeah, we'd love to help out where we can. Awesome. Well, look, Dan, I really appreciate you joining the pod today. Uh, enjoyed the conversation. Congrats again to you and Matt and your team on the W at SBC the other week. Let's take that as a sign of big things to come for scrimmage. So really wishing you and the team all the best for the rest of the year ahead here. Appreciate it. It was great hanging out with you.